something curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. You join us for a special occasion. Not only are we celebrating our third anniversary, leading into our fourth season of the podcast, but it is World Space Week. And a big welcome to anyone joining us from the World Space Week events page. And I hope you enjoy the show. As always, I'm not alone during the show because across the pond should be my partner in crime. John Berger, how you doing, sir? Every show is special because I'm here. Well, okay, you know, like, <laughs> but if every show is special, then none of them are special. So I guess it cancels out. Hi, how you doing? I'm fine. <laughs> three years. Three years, yeah? You have put up with me for three years. You deserve an award. And uh, we've had a, quite a lot of highlights in that time. Ah, a cup of totri, as they'd say in my hometown. <laughs> I know one that will bring to mind with you straight away. Greetings, fellow Earthlings. This is Richard Garriott, the 483rd person to leave our home planet and the first second-generation American astronaut. Yes! <laughs> awesome! Those of you out there who don't know who Richard Garriott is, um, it's difficult to actually put a title to him, really. He made his fortune through video game developing pretty much right from the start wasn't it the the early the days of computing series. yeah lord british that's the guy grew up on that eventually became the first second generation astronaut meaning his father Owen Garriott was uh, an astronaut on Skylab and then Richard became an astronaut in his own right and went up to the space station I think in 2008 I think it was something like that and we've spoken to Richard about both sections of his life (laughs) the, the video gaming and being an astronaut an hour and a half and it was fantastic from there we've spoken to many different people and then last year last october just after last year's world space week we were contacted by nasa hey this is sarah from nasa goddard that was a bizarre situation wasn't it bizarre but awesome at the same time it was i mean the fact that we hadn't contacted them they contacted us it's um not something that happens every day nope so somebody there must have heard of us we haven't heard from them lately maybe we ticked them off i'm not too (laughs) sure what's going on there um i just think personally that there isn't a great deal going on for that kind of media coverage most of the stuff going on lately is spacex yes so, makes sense. I mean, the last big thing was the eclipse, and they did contact us about that, so... Which was awesome! <laughs> now, some of you might know, I recently took a trip to the northeast of England and discovered an eatery with a little bit of a twist. Right, I'm in the city of Durham, which is in the, the northeast of uh, the UK, for... Those of you outside the UK, not quite sure where it is. It's um, well, it's in between sort of Newcastle and Sunderland, isn't it? It's that sort of yeah, yeah region. Now I'm with a guy called Dan Pye, and he runs an establishment that is really pretty unique, and, and it's called the Dark Matter Cafe. Um, hi, Dan. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, good. Thanks. Thanks for coming. So. 
tell us a little bit about uh, the cafe and what it's all about. Um, so the cafe started in 2013, and its main objective was to be a comic book and gaming cafe uh, in the center, uh, in the city centre of Durham, um, which is something that uh, we've kind of deviated from since. Uh, yeah, we still got comics and stuff, but we've we've become a little bit more of a gaming cafe than we have more comics. Um, I guess we are a, a, a centre for geeks, really, um, but we're also trying to. Uh, Upmarket our image, if you like, to uh, to to neutralise it a little bit, um, just to bring in some more of the surrounding community, so everybody kind of gathers together here. Right. But that's a, a good thing, though, because um, I know gaming clubs do bring the community together. Yeah, they do, and I think um, gaming's one of those things that it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or what your background is. You've always uh, had some contact with games, whether that be board games um, or whether it be video games, and it has this real nice nostalgic um, feel to it. Does does any format of gaming? Um, and indeed, we've got people who come in who are in their 80s even and still remember playing Monopoly when they were younger, and they enjoy playing Monopoly here. Um, and then younger kids playing with that older generation as well is quite nice to see. So Yeah, so it's, it's really nice to hear that some of the, the classic games are still being played in, in uh, establishments like, uh, like yourself. And, and uh, um, I mean, they're re-releasing a lot of the old games as well, like um, uh, Escape from Colditz, which is had a, 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 another release. Yeah, they are. They, they, they re-release a lot of old games um, and will try and modernise them sometimes they put a different spin on them and things but um, I think the, the classic board games uh, they're always going to have some form of market um, particularly strategy based games uh, they, they always have such a strong following things like Settlers of Catan Risk although they've had many adaptions they still maintain as the core strategy games to play so. I, I think in, on, on games like that it's it's like one-upmanship really everyone likes to try and beat someone at something yeah I, th- I think we live in a very competitive culture <laughs> um, and uh, and to, to have those bragging rights on Facebook and stuff like that you know yeah I think that's a uh, yeah so, so tell me about the, the cafe itself because mm-hmm. I, I know a lot of um, the, the the food that you sell have, have got very unique names and, and things like that. Yeah, they have. Um, I mean, we've seen many different uh, uh, cafes try and uh, do gaming and uh, food and drink and stuff like that. And what we wanted to do was give it more of a, uh, a themed feel um, with with good quality food. So we've named some of our burgers, for example, the Mario Burger. Uh, the Garados burger. Actually, we've changed it recently because people couldn't pronounce the word Garados, <laughs> so we've changed it to the Gary Oak burger. Um, and uh, and indeed, our cocktails also have various different uh, themed names, uh, such as the Jawa, the Intergalactic, the Hadouken. Uh, the Hadron Collider and stuff. So we try and keep everything very themed uh, with what we are. I've, I've just noticed one that will keep my co-host very happy, the Firefly, because he he loved that uh, he loved that show. So <laughs> yeah, I think it's uh, the Firefly. So it's really strange because for a show to be cancelled uh, to have such a strong following, it's really bizarre. Yeah, but I think it would ruin it if they brought it back. Yeah, I think you're right there actually. <laughs> 
And uh, I, I noticed on your Facebook page you, uh, you're very heavily into uh, astronomy and things like that as well. Yeah, we are. We are uh, massively into astronomy, which is kind of where uh, our passions personally lie. Um, I'm part of uh, the team at Kielder Observatory and Lindsay's a very keen astrophysicist and uh, we, we try and incorporate science outreach into as many projects as we can. Yeah, some of the uh, some of the comic conventions that we uh, that we organised, we um, we brought in specialists to try and have uh, a good, strong science outreach, um, particularly with astronomy, um, and obviously the name dark matter comes from definitely yes, it holds everything together. Yeah, and that's that's, that's <laughs> the reason why we call it dark matter because it holds the community together. So it kind of has that fluffy kind of line. <laughs> that's awesome, actually. Yeah. I'd never thought of it that way. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the astronomy side of things, do you actually um, have a lot of the students, or science-based students? or They are. The, a lot of the science-based students live up this side. And I mean, Durham's obviously one of the biggest universities in the country um, for developing bits and pieces for uh, the International Space Station, for uh, observatories around the world and such. Um, so, so we've got some really keen astronomy students here and in fact actually just living around the corner is uh, one of the world renowned astrophysicists in dark matter, Professor Carlos Frank, he just lives around the corner here and he's one of the lecturers at Durham Uni. Wow! Um, In fact actually when we first opened we didn't know that he lived there until a BBC2 did a documentary on dark matter and we ended up on the documentary (laughs) because he was around the corner so so yeah we we try and uh, have a relationship with the university to have talks here as well and outreach uh, to the community and also to the students who are local as well Um, brilliant the atmosphere in here I mean it's everywhere you go there's just geek culture everywhere you look it's just a really good setup here yeah it is and uh, and we're actually at the moment where we're facing a kind of issue where um, we get criticised for being maybe too geeky uh, which is which is interesting uh, because I, I we have relaxed a lot of it since we first opened and I guess if we if we went any further, we'd lose the charm. I think. Yeah, I I, I think you would as well. I mean, it's to be honest with you. I mean, at, at the moment, it is on trend anyway. Geek culture is is where it's at at the moment. So it's you know the popularity is is, is there. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I think I think it has dropped over the past maybe twelve months or so, but uh, it is it is still very current. Cool to be geek. So. I totally agree. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's because uh, I'm involved in a lot of the, the convention scene in myself, so uh, it's brilliant just to, to see places like this popping up. And the, the other thing is, uh, do, do you find um, like people with more on, say, uh, the autistic spectrum um, frequent places like this because they feel comfortable? Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's probably one of the most important areas of our of, of, of what we do is we, we give people who are on the autistic spectrum a, a place to feel comfortable uh, and to feel welcome. Um, because I think people, particularly the parents, know it's always very difficult to find a place where they are comfortable and where they can be uh, immersed in something. Um, 
but here tends to be their safe haven uh, so to speak yeah it does feel very relaxed in here yeah and everybody is exactly the same here I think that's also very important is we don't acknowledge people having autism or being from different societies and stuff like that you know everybody is exactly the same um and welcome in exactly the same way and I think that helps as well that's that's a brilliant way to be and I, I think it, it, it shows I mean as I say it's, it's, it is such a relaxed feeling here and uh, I saw your website and I was drawn to it straight away and I said had to get in touch with you to, to see if I could have a, a few words yeah it's something we would love to promote because it's it's what we do we pro- promote other people's uh, ventures in the sci-fi stroke gaming stroke uh, comic book scene yeah and that's what we try and do and um Whenever I'm travelling about and I notice something a bit different, mm. I'm trying to embrace it. So that was one of the main reasons for coming in. Good. Well, I'm, I'm pleased you enjoy it. Brilliant. Well, thanks for talking with us, Dan. No worries. Thank you. Thanks for coming. What was it about that place that made it, what, quote unquote, too geeky? Um, yeah. Because to me, there is no such thing. <laughs> I will be putting some stuff up in the show notes and photos and all kinds of stuff. Um, One of the things that really got me, as you know, John, I have a problem with Weeping Angels from Doctor Who. (laughs) And uh, I needed to use the necessarium. Um, That's that's what we call the bathroom in in, in my family's house. Um, (laughs) You go in the door and everything looks normal until you lift the lid of the toilet and there's a weeping angel's face. (laughs) I had problems. (laughs) Yeah, but you realize that's probably there to help you because it would scare the shit out of people. (laughs) It was really bizarre. And then I looked around the walls and noticed all these little round circles everywhere and I thought, uh, this is very TARDIS-esque kind of thing. Look round at the door that I'd closed behind me and there was a K9 painted on the door. <laughs> um, See, how is that too geeky? <laughs> That's awesome! Everywhere you look there is some kind of memorabilia. As you'll see in the photographs there's a picture of Tim Peake on the wall. <laughs> nice. Um... A set of bookshelves with uh, astronomy books and all that kind of stuff. And there is a mobile on the ceiling with the planets on there. There is um, video gaming going on all the time. They have these mugs with the logo of the cafe on one side, but as soon as you pick it up to put it to your face... It looks like one of the superhero masks on your face. <laughs> that sounds awesome to me. That, that's not too geeky. That's awesome. <laughs> they have like a cellar where they have gaming rooms in. As we mentioned in the clip, the food and the cocktails and things that they have are all named after geeky things. So as we mentioned there, there's the sonic screwdriver the dark side and they keep coming up with new ideas for burgers and they put them up on facebook and they ask people to come up with a new name for them uh, wait, wait 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 let me keep up with my habit here uh, that is so cool <laughs> now dan is a really nice guy and not only does he run the dark matter cafe he also does voiceover work for uh, animation and video games um, oh, nice 
I only found this out when he gave me his business card, which also has a bit of a twist. And it's very clever because instead of being a rectangle, it's a triangle with the words, here is a slice of pie written uh, across it. Cute. Now, we also mentioned in there Durham University. Durham University are hosting an annual event called Celebrate Science and it takes place from the 24th to the 26th of October at Palace Green in the heart of Durham's World Heritage Site where a wide range of science themed activities will be taking place and children will be invited to carry out amazing experiments participate in astonishing hands-on activities and create their own inventions and there'll be university experts on hand to answer questions from the visitors on everything from molten lava to time travel and best of all the whole event is free nice so well worth going to i i love these things especially when they're free especially for the kids the northeast is not the most well-off part of the country so you know to try and get kids involved in science by putting on free events is a brilliant idea Mm -hmm. but uh, i think you also uh received something from me since the last show yeah very very pleasantly surprised (laughs) (laughs) and i didn't know that process was available on stamps i wasn't going to send you over something you'd hate (laughs) these stamps are heat sensitive and once you apply heat to them they change from no eclipse to full eclipse basically (laughs) i didn't know either i forget how i found out I just was like, oh, I got to go grab some of those. And it's like, mm, I know who wants one. <laughs> I, figured, well, see, I figured you didn't know about it. Otherwise, you would have asked me to get a set for you. Mm-hmm. you know, or, or you would have mentioned it in some way. So I was like, he hasn't said anything. I think I'll make this a surprise. What do you have to do? Get on the get on the post office's website and try to figure out what's going on, or did you just like hold it and all of a sudden took your finger away and saw what happened? Or I I wondered at first. I thought oh, they were a bit boring. They just look black. You know, that's not a great stamp. And then um, I noticed one of them had started to change whilst I was holding it. I thought, uh, I see what's going on here. (laughs) So uh, I thought, I I want to take a photograph of these, but it's not going to do very much as a photograph. So I thought, if I take a few photographs of them and then make them into a GIF, it should get the idea of how these things work out to people on Facebook. So, yeah, that's what I did with them. (laughs) Cool. Glad you like it. Whilst we're on the topic of stamps, they brought out a second set of those Star Wars ones. They actually sent me a postcard from there Mm -hmm. saying, hey, we've got these new Star Wars stamps. (laughs) Yeah, I got one of those as well. Yeah, but the fact that they sent me a postcard over here. <laughs> that's that's pretty amazing. Uh, what I was surprised at were, with yours is that how quick it actually got here. I think it was something like three, four days. Yeah, they, they've actually been getting really good with shipping stuff to and from Europe as of the you know, past few years. I suppose that's with the, the invention... Well, not the invention, because it's been around for a while, but, you know, with... Uh, how eBay is very, very popular, um, mm. and a lot of people buy stuff from overseas, so I guess they thought, well, we must do something with this. They didn't have a choice, really. <laughs> you know, when you've got UPS and FedEx and a bunch of other global distribution companies, I guess the post office is like, we got to modernize, folks. Yeah, I mean, one of the best parcel services we have in the UK at the moment is called DPD, uh, which actually stands for Deutsche Parcel Dispatch. Mm. So it's a German company. And as you know, the Germans are renowned for their efficiency. 
I do like that company. They do keep you informed of what's going on. They tell you via text message when your parcel's coming. Basically, they give you a two-hour window, and they say your parcel will be here between this time and that time. So you can either go out beforehand or go out afterwards. Fantastic. It then tells you the name of the driver that will be delivering your parcel, which confused wow. the hell out of the guy who delivered yeah. it because I went, oh, hi, Nathan. And he was like, uh-huh. <laughs> What? <laughs> you enjoyed that, didn't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that's what you call an efficient service. Cool. By the way, I meant to mention this earlier. I have not yet started building that rocket. <laughs> I will get there. Oh, that reminds me, actually. A friend of mine sent me some photographs. He's actually got one of those Millennium Falcons. Oh, that's right. I forgot they went on sale a few days ago. Yeah. Uh, no, not for 800 bucks. Sorry. Even though I know it'll be worth thousands in 10 years. I'm just, no. When I saw the boxes that it came in. Oh, yeah. Four boxes. Four is he actually going to put it together? He's done it. Oh, it's, oh my God. He, he did it in three days. He had time off. He had time off from work. And uh, wow. three days, about seven or eight hours constant putting it together. Oh. Um, so, yeah, he sent me some photographs of the boxes that it came in. They are, oh, man. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm going to be doing this in, in metric, but they're about a, a meter by a meter. Okay, so about three feet by three feet. And probably about... 15 to 20 centimeters deep so what's that it's under a foot isn't it so but yeah four boxes of that size now is that how it comes in the single box yeah you get four is that how they're delivered you get four boxes inside a single box okay so it's quite a big box that it comes in. And then you've got all the bags like you had in, <laughs> inside mm. these boxes. It's really cool. You get two sets of characters that come in there. You get traditional original trilogy ones, and then you get the Force Awakens characters. And it even comes with two radar dishes. You get the round one and the square one, right? which is really cool. <laughs> Yeah, they have it listed as coming soon on their site, so you know that that sold out. Mm -hmm. A lot of people just bought it to store it away, and I don't necessarily blame them. So for him, it it was um, £650. Quite expensive for some Lego. (laughs) Yeah, but they knew people were going to pay for that. Oh, yeah. Obviously, they did. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, I know another friend of mine was really... He was like, oh, I can't believe you got the uh, Apollo rocket, and he was trying for like a month monitoring it and monitoring and he was getting angry it's like why aren't they selling more right and he finally nabbed one they put some more available on their website and he grabbed one i'm trying to get this friend on the show actually because um, not only does he make a lot of lego stuff he is a member of the uk predators the cosplaying group <laughs> yeah nice uh, this year was his first actual year in costume at the big comic cons in the uk this first one it literally blew him away he he didn't know how to take it but now he's hooked and he actually builds his own armor and uh, all kinds of bits and pieces in his workshop and yeah he's he's having a good time and now as i say he's an official member of the uk predators which is uh, uh, i suppose you can say it's a bit like being in the the 501st or one of those kind of operations but for mm-hmm. uh, for predators <laughs> nice 
Right. Any links to anything we talk about will be in the show notes, and there will be details of where to find the show notes at the end of the show. So what we'll do now is we'll have a short break, and when we come back, we'll have our space news section. Today, we live in one of the most exciting times in history for space travel and discovery. Missions like NASA's New Horizons and SpaceX's Dragon are expanding our knowledge of how far humans can reach into the universe, from sending satellites into deep space to potentially living on Mars. Inspired by recent discoveries of ancient solar systems and innovations in spaceflight vehicles, the World Space Week Association selected the 2017 theme, Exploring New Worlds in Space. With this outward-looking theme, the Association is planning for the largest Space Week since its United Nations Declaration in 1999. Organizers and scientists alike hope this focus on discovery will foster discussions about the benefits of advancing space technology and where humans should explore next. I just see it uh, as a beginning. Uh, not just this flight, but in this program, which has really been a very short piece of human history, an instant in history. But this instant is gearing up to be one of the most influential and innovative in all of history for science beyond our planet. And this Space Week, we get a front row seat to take part in these activities. Space exploration and research back here on Earth is not just an endeavor for a few. It brings together the best and brightest of all nations and millions of fascinated Earthlings to wonder, work together, and innovate. This is TGP Nominal. We don't yet know what dark matter is made of, but the sun might help us out. If dark matter particles are extremely light, they could bounce off atomic nuclei within the sun and gain enough energy in the process that we could detect them. A guy called Chris Kavaris from the University of Southern Denmark and his colleagues calculate that particles of this sub-jev dark matter could be accelerated to speeds in excess of 600 kilometers per second in this way. Dark matter spreads throughout the cosmos, so if these sub-jev particles exist, some of them could be hitting the sun all the time. As they bounce around with the sun, some would gain enough speed to escape towards Earth. Faster particles are easier to detect because they have more energy, so this solar boost could be the key to making dark matter visible to us. But the sub-G dark matter particles will need to interact with the normal matter in our detectors. For this to happen, they will need a helper particle to mediate in that interaction. For example, weakly interacting massive particles, or WIMPs, <laughs> interact with ordinary matter by exchanging subatomic particles called W and Z bosons. There are basically two particles that are needed. You need the dark matter particles and you need some other particles for them to interact through, says Daniel McKenzie at the University of California in Berkeley. Some of the more sceptical colleagues would say that it's something like believing in two tooth fairies. <laughs> I say, if you believe in one tooth fairy, why not two? <laughs> McKenzie says this idea is still a big deal because 
it gives us an entirely new way to look for dark matter after decades of fruitless searching. Pretty cool idea, huh? If they can figure that out, that would be amazing. It's something fairly simple. Well, in the whole... Oh, yeah. <laughs> in the whole scope nothing of the... In, nothing in astrophysics is simple. <laughs> but uh, the way they've put it across, it's fairly simple. <laughs> <laughs> Made it simple for us plebes to understand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I read this and thought, wow. For years they've been trying to suss this out. And something like this, if they can pull it off, it would be fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what else there is to say on that one. I, I'm not an astrophysicist physicist so i can't say either way I, I love what he says here as well mckenzie says it'll be the biggest discovery in modern physics and if it doesn't work then researchers will simply have to find new ways to look there you go <laughs> oh, that's what it's all about keep trying keep trying keep trying and if you finally decide there's nothing else to try well move on yeah it seems feasible but you know what's going to happen. All these mysteries of the universe, the dark matter, the electromagnetic drive, which still has not been completely disproven, mm -hmm. you know, all of this stuff, we're going to figure it out all on one day, and the answer is going to be 42. Oh, yeah. You Definitely. know that's going to happen. Yeah. We figured it all out. It's 42. <laughs> universe implodes. I'm obviously in a weird mood. I don't care. <laughs> I'm having fun. That's what it's all about. They think they might have found an explanation as to why Tabby's star is dimming and brightening. And no, an alien megastructure is not part of that equation. That would come out to 43, so it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole thing of, with it slowly losing its light, it actually had a couple of instances where it got really bright and then started to get dark again. Astronomers think that it actually comes down to dust. That's pretty much it. Just just stellar dust. Well, up to this point, they've been looking at it in the infrared spectrum. Right. What They decided to look at it in ultraviolet. And when you're using ultraviolet instead of infrared, then any object larger than, you know, whatever a, a grain of dust would be, would cause a uniform dimming across pretty much all wavelengths. So anything like an, an alien megastructure would make all frequencies of light dim. But what they were finding is that there was a difference between the amount of light dimming in the ultraviolet spectrum as opposed to the infrared. So lead author Juan Meng, I do hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, of the University of Arizona said that this pretty much rules out the alien megastructure theory as that could not explain the wavelength-dependent dimming. We suspect instead there is a cloud of dust orbiting the star with roughly a 700-day orbital period. The whole study took place between January and December of 2016, and they studied it in infrared using the Spitzer and Swift Space Telescopes, and as well as visible light using the Astrolab IRIS, which is uh, a public observatory actually out in Belgium. So between the infrared and the UV and all the other ones, what they saw was that the intensity of it diminished. It wasn't across all three. Mm -hmm. It was separate. So that... that pretty much rules out that it's an alien megastructure and it just comes down to the size of the particulates that are getting in the way to allow certain wavelengths through and, and block others. Now, that doesn't mean that the mystery is solved, obviously, because like I said, a, a different study 
done with the Carnegie Institution for Science out in Pasadena, found that Tabby Star actually had two brightening spells over the past 11 years. So it's like, well, what's that all about? Which to me kind of says, all right, well, no one said that the dust cloud had to be uniform. You know, it's a dust cloud. Mm -hmm. You'll have thicker areas, thinner areas. You know, so who's to say that that had to be uniform? But a dust cloud does seem to be the going theory now. Yeah, that kind of makes sense, too, when you think about it. Yeah, it does. Oh, you know what? We completely forgot about the really big space news since we had the last show. Cassini. That should have been at the front of the show, really. That was a strange one, to be honest. As we thought, it kind of had the the feel of Rosetta <laughs> towards the end. It did. Um, it did. I was listening to it driving into work. So they were, they were talking about how, all right, yeah, we now have the readings that the thrusters are at maximum and all that. And all of a sudden, the, the one frequency goes out and then the other one goes out. It's like, oh, really? But it is really awesome, the, the stuff that it was producing towards the end. It was... Yeah, some of the photographs that it was returning in the days before, you know, before the camera was shut off. Yeah. Amazing. And it would be interesting now to see the the kind of stuff that it was getting from the different sensors just before they lost the signal. Yeah, it's going to take them a long time to analyze all that stuff. Just think about the people that were working on that because it was a 30-year project for some people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that I can't remember her name now, but the lady that was in charge of the project, I mean, she, she was, you know, quite a youngster when she started the program, and it was, yeah. you know, see her now, she's... I, I, I'm, that I'm, was her life. I wasn't going to speculate <laughs> on her age, but... Uh, well, I, I, I know where you're going with that. <laughs> but yeah, if, if you're listening, you know what we mean, too. We love you. <laughs> Thank you for what you did. Yeah, amazing, amazing work. Long might continue because all the scientists now are like, wow, now it's our turn to <laughs> really make a difference. Yeah. But the really sad part is that what do we have next? I mean, we've, we've got New Horizon going out there. Mm-hmm. I, I guess Osiris Rex just, just did a slingshot past us. What else do we have going on? They're so focused on Mars. Mm-hmm. Can we please get a probe out to e- either Uranus or Neptune? I still think we need to get around one of the the liquid moons, like Europa or something like that. You know, right? Uh, I mean, there was talk of that, wasn't it? The, the, wasn't it called yeah. the, the Clipper? Wasn't it? it? Was Europa Clipper? Was it? Was that the one that actually will, would f- go into the uh, ocean? I think it was. It was like a submarine type yeah. thing. Yeah, that would communicate with the relay, which would then send signals back to us. Mm. That would be that would be kind of neat. Yeah, anything like that hasn't been tried before, so I'll be interested. I can see James Cameron getting excited about that one. <laughs> uh, I don't think he's going to be going up to film that in 3D, though. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's into all that stuff, isn't he? Or the, uh, the aquatic uh, type stuff. Well, he's always been into history, too, mm. so... <laughs> Did you see the speech that Elon Musk gave at the uh, International Astronautical Congress? I didn't see it. I only heard what whatever the Twitter feed said and then mm-hmm. whatever articles came out. It's difficult to take in the things he says, but through his track record, you can't say, no, this, is, this isn't going to work. <laughs> you can't say that with him because there's a very good chance that it's going to happen. 
So he's he's got this idea. He, all right, he's scaled it down from last year at the conference, which was in Mexico. This year's congress was held in Adelaide in Australia, and uh, he's got a new version of the reusable booster and spaceship that he wants to try and get to Mars with. And I like the fact that it's more collectively known by a code name, which is BFR, which can only stand for one thing. And as big fracking rocket, so I mean, <laughs> and big and, fracking rocket, you, you're channeling your inner Battlestar Galactica there. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> With want of a better word, really. <laughs> what a load of Felker carb. <laughs> Um, so it has been scaled down from the original design, <laughs> making it more feasible for them to market it, really. But yeah, so what I want them to do um, with it is, is not just going to Mars. They want it to launch huge satellites and things like that. That's going to be one hell of a satellite, though. <laughs> um, as soon as the mid-2020s, that's pretty close. Yeah, that is. But, you know, with all the launches that have been going on and all of the uh, the pressure, shall we say, whether mm-hmm. it's deserved or not, to get to Mars and so forth, at least they're trying. And and there is now more push. And I know we've been saying it for a few years, probably since the podcast started, that we should be heading back to the moon first. Train to do what you want to do on, on Mars, on the moon. And there is more pressure to do that now. And I think even NASA are starting to think that way. I saw that actually they are looking at making sure that the moon is actually a part of the Mars mission. Like anything that going anything going to Mars would actually stop off at some kind of station at the moon first, then go out. That sort of thing. I, lo- I love the way that it says on this thing, Elon Musk later posted an Instagram of an animation of the point-to-point application of the BFR and it had a little message at the bottom saying cost per seat should be about the same price as a full fare economy in an aircraft. I forgot to mention that, he said. Okay, th- this is actually Lockheed Martin talking about what they were going to do with the moon and they were announcing it the same thing. That, that, that same Australia, Adelaide. The, the con- All of my energy from before has disappeared. No, not really. The Congress. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, Lockheed Martin was talking about their plans, and they were saying that they want to have something like a orbiting platform at Mars, from, and from there, astronauts would go down for brief missions, like a few days or, or at most two weeks, then get back up to the space station. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about, of course, the, the rocket that they're looking to do that sort of thing, the front of it looks just like the space shuttle. Of course. <sighs> of course. They were actually going to have what's called the Deep Space Gateway at the moon, which is supposed to be a small orbital space station and serve as a way station or launching point for crewed missions to get to Mars. So instead of going straight to Mars, they go to this little orbiting platform around the moon, then they go to Mars. Well, if they said they were going to make a base on the moon, you know that they've got to call it Moon Base Alpha. <laughs> Just make sure that the moon stays in its orbit, please. Yeah, Thank no, you. No nuclear blast that pushes no. it out of its orbit. No. <laughs> oh, wow. Actually, one of the planets that was in space 1999 is the same name as a town that is not too far from where I am right now. There's a planet called Luton and yeah, there's a place just up the road called Luton. I did know Luton. I watch enough Monty Python I should know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, of course, we've had um, a couple of weather-related incidents hitting this country in the past few weeks. Yes. Fortunately, there was no loss of life regarding this. However, there has been quite a bit of damage to the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. Ouch. Well, as you know, Maria just barreled right through there. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, the eye of the hurricane was just a little bit away from Arecibo. But that thing got hit with 150-mile-an-hour winds. Now, if you folks think you have never seen this thing before, yeah, you have. If you've seen the movie Goldeneye, Mm -hmm. you've seen it. Yeah. Because that's that's where the final fight takes place. It's huge. That big satellite dish. So... Yeah, what they—the really big piece of damage from it, you know that uh, that big line feed antenna that hangs above it. Yeah, yeah. If you see Goldeneye, that's where the final fight takes place, and where Bond actually drops the bad guy. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> yeah, t- twenty years. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> well, unfortunately, that big feed antenna broke in half, and it's about five hundred feet above the dish. So it it's heavy, it's big, and it had all that time to gain velocity, and it just punctured right through the dish. Wow. So, yeah, if you actually look at the dish, it, it actually got damaged in several places where it stuff just broke right through it. So, yeah, that, that line feed weighs about 10,000 pounds, and uh, it just the, the line snapped because of 150-mile-an-hour winds, and it just came literally crashing down. Fortunately, as I said, there there was no loss of life regarding that. Everyone was prepared for it. They have plenty of water and food and fuel for that sort of thing. One of the things that I didn't know is under normal storm conditions, people in the neighboring town will actually go there for, for protection because they have food, fuel, water. So it actually also it ended up being a refuge for people as well. So who knows how long it's going to be before they can get it fully back. And I, we've actually talked about, I don't know, maybe a year ago or so, thoughts about are they even going to keep it up. So who knows? If they were if they were considering before getting rid of it, this might be the final nail in the coffin. You never know. Yeah. So who knows what's going to happen or with, regarding it. Once they finally assess the damage and they realize what it's going to cost, they're going to weigh that with the benefits and... We'll find out. Yeah, that did cause a lot of damage right across the board. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Puerto Rico just got... Let's just use the word destroyed. Mm-hmm. People are still alive and so forth, but Puerto Rico's gone as we knew it. Yeah. Yeah. Have you heard the news about Orbital ATK? I've heard the news today. Oh, boy. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, what about them? Orbital ATK has been bought out by Northrop Grumman. What? It's a deal worth $9.2 billion dollars and 7.8 of that was actually cash Oof. the rest of that was in shares wow which were at 134 dollars a piece although in fairness i mean orbital atk they actually are doing launch vehicles mm-hmm. does northrop grumman really have launch vehicles yeah sure they they help to build and they provide technology for it but do they actually have their own launch vehicles i don't think they do so then this kind of makes sense. It, it's a partnership that makes sense. Mm. It says here, uh, Orbital ATK will operate as a fourth division of Northrop Grumman alongside aerospace systems, mission systems, and technology services. 
Our two companies represent a very complementary fit, Wes Bush, chairman and chief executive of Norfolk Grumman, said, we have very little overlap. Yeah. The acquisition reflects the tremendous value that Orbital ATK has created for our customers, our shareholders and our employees, said David Thompson, president and chief executive of Orbital ATK. The deal will allow Orbital ATK to pursue new opportunities that require greater and technical financial resources than we currently possess. So, yeah. They've got a lot of money to throw at it. Um, basically, oh, yeah. what they've been saying is that some of the, the satellites and things that Orbital ATK use are on a smaller scale, whereas um, Northrop Grumman can actually make bigger units for them to, to use. Mm-hmm. And also the, the defense side of things as well. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, it was a bit of a shock to the uh, space community when it was announced. Apparently, this has been on the cards for about the last eight or nine months, and they've just decided to announce it now. The announcement made no mention of consolidations typical with these deals, such as the closure of redundant facilities or layoffs or, or of employees and that kind of thing. But they never do. They look at the, the bright side of it, and then they normally slip that kind of stuff under the carpet, don't they? Right. But, but even at that, this is something that Northrop Grumman doesn't do. Really, there's no need to let people go, except maybe at the really high, you know, really upper, upper top part, because this is something they don't have. So it's not like they're taking something they have and they're merging it with something else. This is kind of a new piece for them. I think you may be right there, to be honest, because... They have got a proven track record with what they do with, uh, you know, their partnership with NASA and that kind of thing for the, uh, you know, the, the cargo supply missions and that kind of stuff. Um, and maybe producing bigger rockets so that they can do deep space exploration. Speaking of bigger rockets, SpaceX has announced plans that they want to attempt the first soft landing of the Falcon 9's upper stage. Oh, wow. And we're obviously used to the lower stage landing now. We kind of expect it to be a successful landing. Mm -hmm. But now they're talking about efforts to recover the upper stage. Because right now, it's pretty much, it's a loss. Yeah. It goes up and it never comes back or it disintegrates or goes into the ocean or however they do it. But they're actually going to start looking at it and they would like to have the first upper stage landing before the end of 2018. They said it's pretty much going to be the exact same thing. Uh, They're going to try landing softly in the ocean first, then bringing one of their very uniquely named drone ships out to try to recover it. They said that as much as 30% or more of the cost of every Falcon 9 launch goes into that second stage. Now the thing is, the uh, the payload fairing is about five million for each launch. One of the previous missions, they've actually recovered um, fairings. The payload fairing, okay. Yeah, yeah. So seeing as how Elon Musk wants to reduce costs anywhere from a factor of 10 to 100, quite a substantial savings, obviously being able to recover and reuse the second stage is a very critical part of that. He wants to, as much as possible, make a fully reusable Falcon 9, which I can't argue with that. Hey, we got it. Let's just fix it up, clean it up, and put more fuel in and send it up again. But what is interesting is that SpaceX did specify that they would not attempt to reuse the Falcon 9's upper stage even if the recovery effort succeeded, which is kind of weird. I don't know. Why would they try to recover it if they're not going to reuse it? Unless, I mean, you could recover it and reuse the material. Yeah, there's probably more to it. They they probably realize that it's going to be a lot more damaged uh, than the first stage would be. 
Mm -hmm. Therefore, you can't use it in its entirety, but you could probably recycle the parts, as it were, and literally recycle the material, not actually the stage. They could just recycle the materials. That would make sense. If that piece alone constitutes 30% of the cost of the rocket, that's several million dollars. Mm -hmm. It would probably make more sense to get what parts from that you can as opposed to just buying a whole new piece for it. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking of is if they're going to return all of the stages, you're going to need a lot of drone ships <laughs> scattered about yeah. all over the place. That, but that's still, that'd be kind of cool to get you know, upper and lower stage returned, even if they're not really going to reuse the upper stage again. Yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting concept, but as I say, it's, it's possible that they, they just want to recycle the materials. Well, you know, maybe we could also look at it even better and saying less space junk. Well, that too. Of course, did you also hear the other thing that they want to do? They want to create, as they call it, a vast constellation of internet satellites around Earth. <laughs> more junk could, in space, yeah. More junk in space. Oh, yeah. well, actually, I've got an article about that later on that we'll, we'll talk about. But it's just funny the way that he presented it, saying that they want to get this global internet access, which is not a bad thing in and of itself, mm -hmm. um, you know, for anybody who gets lost at sea and things like that. But then he wants to use that to make scads of cash spend it on going to Mars, and give Mars broadband, too. The lag on that would be really bad. Yeah, I was going to say, get your priorities right, yeah. Yeah, you ain't going to be doing no internet gaming on Mars. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it takes 15 minutes. Oh, that guy shot me 15 minutes ago. What? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you know it. You love it. You can't live without it. This is TGP Normal. Nominal. Damn. I take it you've heard the story about the Australians getting their first space agency. Yeah! Now, that surprised me that they haven't got one already because of the amount of stuff that they actually do in space with, yeah. you know, radio telescopes. In the late 60s and early 70s, the, the launch facilities for the, the British space programme were launched from Australia. Our Black Arrow and Blue Streak rockets were, were launched from Australia. Yeah, so it really did surprise me that they didn't have a space agency already. Yeah. Now, I read an article. I've got, got the article here, and it is the most positive article I have ever read about space. And it is typically Australian. Uh, what does that mean? Australians are not afraid to say what they think, <laughs> basically. Okay. And... It's very, very heartfelt, this article. And it is not often that news of a government review fires the imagination and fills one's heart with hope. Such thing has happened when the Australian industry minister recently announced that the federal government was looking into the establishment of an Australian space agency. The fact that their southern bit of the planet underneath Asia has long made Australia ideally placed as a relay station when NASA's bits of the planet are facing away from their missions, which is why Australia got the first pictures of the historic Apollo 11 moonwalk before the Americans did, and also got a heartwarming film made out of it as well. 
i.e. The Dish, mm-hmm. which is an awesome movie, I must admit. In the Apollo days, NASA was the only non-Soviet game in town. But these days, space science is all about collaboration. Australia's position on the planet's less crowded side means that they could be well sought after as partners, not only for NASA, but the European Space Agency, the China National Space Administration, the Indian Space Research Organization, JAXA, and about every other government agency looking upwards. (laughs) And that's before we get into the private companies that are starting to enter the marketplace. Commercially providing a Southern Hemisphere staging ground with a highly educated local staff, this would be an economic slam dunk. Space exploration and pure science generally has historically offered an impressively high return on investment. For every, why are we spending money uh, on all this nerd stuff when we could be spending it on insert worthy project here? (laughs) There's examples like the tech behind Wi-Fi, which is the Commonwealth Science and Industrial Research Organization, CSIRO, when they accidentally invented Wi-Fi as an attempt to decipher messy signals from radio telescopes searching for tiny black holes. The experiment itself failed, but accidentally created a patent worth more than a billion dollars to the public purse. Uh, That's Australian dollars. Space is such a cool area of science. All science is freaking amazing, but space is the perfect gateway science for young people wondering what might be an interesting thing to do with their lives. There are rockets, there are robots, there are explosions. What kid doesn't like that kind of stuff? (laughs) That's true. (laughs) There's also the fact that the wide, clear skies outside the light-polluted metropolitan areas have inspired generations of Australian astronomers, cosmologists, astrophysicists to dedicate their lives to space and therefore leave Australia because what the hell are they going to do there? Teach another generation of thwarted would-be space scientists? Stop the brain drain seems pretty savvy kind of plan. Right now is the perfect time to get involved because humanity is getting excitingly close to making some fundamental discoveries about our place in the universe. Missions are being currently planned to explore some of the places which seem to have massive liquid water oceans beneath their frozen surfaces, Saturn's moon Enceladus and Jupiter's moon Europa, whilst NASA's Hubble replacing James Webb Space Telescope will have the capacity to analyse the atmospheres of planets orbiting the stars we could be the first generation to discover life beyond earth australia wants to be in on that sweet action surely (laughs) and finally space exploration is just about the purest expression of humanity at its glorious brilliant best and a time when division xenophobia and anti-science dogma is at its all-time high now will be an excellent time to inject a bit of awe and inspiration about humankind into the public discourse. Having people here that can talk about their work, articulate their research to the public and to the media as well as in the Senate would do wonders for making science feel like a living, breathing part of our national culture rather than something egghead pencil pushers do in their ivory towers. Kids should be able to feel that they can contribute to this glorious human project without having to move to another country and should be able to feel the same sort of wonder and excitement that kids in the 60s and 70s did when science and technology wasn't framed as a suspicious left-wing element of our pointless destructive culture wars. 
<laughs> if this government wants to build a legacy which it can be proud of, an Australian space agency will be the one that goes to infinity and beyond. So they use the tagline from an American cartoon show to highlight Australian space access. <laughs> Okay. Now, but they didn't announce the real reasons because New Zealand beat them to it. Yeah, they did make a point of <laughs> saying, right, New Zealand's got one, so we should have one. Um, <laughs> we're picking on you, Australia. We love you. <laughs> now, the federal government were a little bit vague when it came to details about the space agency, i.e. Yeah. what it was going to be called, where it was going to be located, etc. So a group decided to take it into their own hands and come up with their own agency. Initially, as a joke, when you see what the acronym spells out, you'll get the joke. They call the agency the Australian Research and Space Exploration, or... <laughs> okay. <laughs> They've even got T-shirts with it on, in a nasa style I want one. <laughs> I, I love what it says on the back. It, it was based around Neil Armstrong's first words. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for down under. <laughs> I love it. Nice. That That's... Yeah. <laughs> but, but somebody from the, the government agency said, yes, we are not calling it that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's quite an exciting time for the Australians. They do get overexcited when they do things, but why not? It's a yeah, fantastic thing to get involved in. I mean, you're right. It's like they haven't had anything space-related. No. You know, whenever Houston is pointed away from whatever it is they're trying to communicate, they go to Australia. Mm -hmm. They've been doing that for decades. Didn't I read that this is also more of, it's just because they need a focal point for that sort of thing? That they have no national organization, so if somebody wants to do something with Australia, who do you go to? That's it. And that's pretty much what we did with uh, with UXA, with the UK Space Agency. UXA. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that sounds like some kind of bad Polish slang. Yeah. You're such a <laughs> I love it when you hear about these, these new agencies and new rocket companies coming out of nowhere. As I've, I've mentioned it before, when I asked the question how many countries have got space agencies, I was told it's easier to ask how many countries don't have space agencies. Mm. Even countries like Romania have got a space agency. Grant, really? Yeah. They've, they've sent somebody into space. 1981. Huh. So busy focusing on the shuttle at that age. Yeah, no, the only time they've sent somebody into space, but well, you know. it, it probably crippled the economy actually. But because um, it was still part of the the, the Soviet bloc in those days. But well, uh, no, wait, this, this was their own launch. Um, no, no. I, I, they just sent an astronaut. Yeah, they just sent an astro okay. astronaut up. But they are involved with building parts for satellites. And I, I actually looked them up because I thought, well, if they've sent an astronaut up, they must have an agency. So, yeah, I looked into it, and sure enough, they do. Well, you learned something new. Mm. So we've talked about Hurricane Maria. We also had another hurricane go through and do some stuff at Houston, which was... Yeah, well, I mean, Houston obviously has fared better than, than poor Puerto Rico has. Houston happens to be where the James Webb Space Telescope is, and it that made it through. But the launch has been delayed till 2019. Yeah, so I heard. So according to, I hope I'm pronouncing this, Thomas Zerbuchin? I don't know. It's clearly 
Germanic area. I, I hope I'm getting it right. Uh, but he is the Associate Administrator to NASA's Science Mission Directorate at the agency's headquarters in Washington, D.C. He said that the change in launch timing is not indicative of hardware or technical performance concerns. Uh, rather, the integration of various spacecraft elements is taking longer than expected. So basically putting together the jigsaw puzzle. Well, basically, it comes down to more testing. As we were warned, uh, it would take as much testing time as they're given. Yeah, unless you kick them out of the room, yeah. The article I've got is actually you quoting Eric Smith himself, the, the yep, guy we spoke one. to. So, yeah. So is this one. Yep. For those of you who are wondering what the hell we're talking about, Eric Smith, who is the James Webb Space Telescope Program Director at NASA, said that uh, Webb spacecraft and SunShield are larger and more complex than most spacecraft. Uh, the combination of some integration activities taking longer than initially planned, uh, such as installation of more than 100 SunShield membrane release devices. Release devices. Uh, factoring in lessons learned from earlier testing, like stronger time spans for vibration testing, has meant that the integration and testing process is just taking longer. Considering the investment NASA has made and the good performance to date, we want to proceed very systematically through these tests and be ready for a spring 2019 launch, which makes sense because we have no way to repair the thing. But these release devices, it's uh, basically when you're dealing with something that is a massive great big piece of origami, as he actually said to us, it was inspired by the tradition of origami. So, you know, you, you need all these different folds working at one time. So, yeah, that's where these release mechanisms or devices come into play. Didn't I read somewhere that during one of the tests they broke something so they had to refit it or something? Oh, I don't recall hearing that. They definitely broke something. Nothing major, but uh, right. well, well, everything's major when, <laughs> when you're dealing with well, these great. things. Oh, here we go. Workers have re-welded transducers to the spacecraft's propulsion system to replace units damaged during its testing, Eric Smith told Spaceflight Now. The transducers were repaired, new ones were put in, so that fix is behind us now, and they've been tested, and it's working fine. Hmm. So, yeah, they did break something during testing. <laughs> That's okay. Hey, better that it breaks during testing. Hmm. That's fine. But, yeah, uh, another six months. <laughs> Yeah. It's kind of like video games. And it's so many... When, when a developer announces that a game is going to get pushed back, so many people are like, Oh, what are you doing? You're just gonna give me the money back. I don't want to wait. What are you doing? Just release it. No, 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 no. Polish it. Make it work. Make it act the way it's supposed to. Then release it. Yeah. That's the way it should be. <gasps> Calm your jets. It's the, th the fact that it is going to so many different places before it gets to its final destination in uh, French Guiana. Each place that it stops off has its own range of tests that it wants to try before it gets there. So it's probably stopped at about six different places, and each place okay. wants to run its own tests. Because there's so many, so many people involved with it, because it is a big deal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Rovers and orbiters have found evidence that Mars had rivers three billion years ago, suggesting that things occasionally warmed up enough for ice to melt and flow as water, sometimes from millions of years. The reason might have been giant bursts of methane, a potent greenhouse gas, according to Edwin Kite of the University of Chicago. These methane deposits, which may date to the birth of Mars could even be responsible for temporary methane burps. Uh. 
spotted by modern Mars spacecraft. <laughs> These methane bursts would have happened as Mars wobbled on its axis. Like Earth, Mars is tilted on its axis, but that tilt can change wildly over time because of the relationships between its orbit and that of Jupiter. When Mars was extremely tilted, its ice deposits spent more time in direct sunlight so they could have melted. This would free methane trapped in the ice crystals. It's basically ice that you can set fire to. So basically, if you had mm -hmm. methane ice, you could flick a lighter at it and get a flame. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Did you ever see, uh, like on, on Mythbusters, they'll have, um, because methane is also lighter than regular air, they'll just fill this huge bubble stack with just a bunch of bubbles filled with nothing but methane gas, and then they light the bottom? Yeah, I've seen then, someone do that on their hand. Yeah. Once it's ignited, it just goes upward, so it goes away from his hand. Mm. Ultraviolet radiation from the sun would eventually break down the methane, but it could persist for up to a million years. The timing and duration of the extreme chill events matches the duration and the relative rarity of lake-forming climates in Mars's history, his team found. Adding a 1% dose of methane to a carbon dioxide-rich atmosphere at the same pressure as Earth's atmosphere would raise the temperatures by 6 degrees centigrade uh, or Celsius, enough to to melt the Martian ice. This would only be possible if Mars also had a blanket of CO2 to keep it warm. The methane would just be an added boost, but recent evidence suggests Mars may not have had as much CO2 as researchers first thought. Thomas Bristow of NASA's Ames Research Center and his colleagues recently found a deficiency of carbonate minerals in the rocks Curiosity has been studying inside the Gale Crater. Having a thick CO2-rich atmosphere leads to some expectations uh, about the kind of rocks you can find deposited at that time. You would expect to see lots of carbonate uh, minerals around, particularly in the sedimentary rocks, Bristow says, but we don't see them. Does this mean that there was indeed low CO2, or was it somehow isolated from the lake bed that Curiosity is now exploring, and maybe the rocks haven't been studied yet? That's an open question. The true test for the methane may come from the ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter, which will begin measuring the Martian atmosphere next spring. It may also be able to detect faint signals of methane, lending weight to the idea that the methane burps could have warmed ancient Mars. The kind of audio effects that are coming to my mind really... <laughs> You're killing me. <laughs> Already on hand. Um, <laughs> you, you sieve through a few episodes of The Simpsons, you get Barney. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so we talked earlier about space debris and the various problems that that can cause. Obviously, even just something as small as a grain of sand going at 17,000 miles an hour could cause some problems. Oh, yeah. Right now, they estimate there are over 500,000 pieces of space debris. Only about 17,000 of them are large enough to be detected on radar. So that's a lot of potential problems out there. Mm -hmm. Well, a company called the Aerospace Corporation out in El Segundo, California, has been awarded $500,000 to develop a very interesting kind of, of way to clean up space debris, if it works. Uh, what they're doing is it's going to be called a brain craft, that's B-R-A-N-E, 
And what they are are little tiny ships that are maybe about a yard across, or I guess that would be what um, three fourths of a meter, something like that. Yeah, something like that. So they're they're actually going to be really small, but they're going to be thinner than a human hair. What they're going to do is they're going to wrap around a chunk of debris and then put thrust against it to slow it down so that it can then eventually burn up in the atmosphere. It's really interesting to, to read what they would like to do with this. Because you figure right now it only costs about $250,000 to launch a CubeSat. Relatively speaking, that's cheap. What they want to do with this is to make spacecraft so light that they would only cost about $5,000 to launch. Wow. Because obviously this thing can be, they're using this to clean up space debris, but then as they refine it, it can be a satellite of its own. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. So the current design is three square feet in size, weighs less than a banana. I don't know why they decided to choose that one for weight measurement, but hey, you know, whatever works. So it weighs less than a banana. It's made of flexible plastic sheets that are only 10 microns thick. And a human hair, for reference, it tends to be about 180 microns thick. Wow. So they could still stack 15 layers of this stuff, and it'll still be thinner than a human hair. And so that's what they're going to do. They'll stack them together, and they will actually have liquid propellant stored in the gap between these sheets. <laughs> wow. Think about that. So then they also want to put solar cells up there to power a type of engine called an electrospray thruster. That sounds like something from a bad porno movie but that will use the propellant very sparingly and so what they're hoping to do is to stack a number of these things like like pizza boxes that sort of thing mm -hmm. so launch them together up into orbit at which point they'll either go to the space station or they'll go to some other low earth orbit and then they will be sent out into the direction of the debris that they're going to try to to get rid of it, it'll take a while for these little membranes hence brain craft to maneuver to each piece of debris and basically wrap itself around like a piece of plastic wrap and then hit its thrusters just enough to slow it down so that it will at some point burn up in the atmosphere probably up to like 10 days or so so they say that the ship to do this could be ready for launching in about 10 years and then they want to refine the design to start acting as super thin electronics so that's where the whole thing of they could be their own satellites comes into play. Right. So the big challenge that they're going to have with it, though, is that when you have something that thin, it doesn't really have much protection from radiation out in space. And obviously we know that radiation destroys electronics pretty, pretty easily. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hello, Chernobyl and robots that died before they could even get close to finishing their job. Mm -hmm. um, so these sheets won't have any kind of, of protection from the radiation. So they've got to try to figure something out. They say that they are going to be getting carbon nanotube circuits that can survive for up to a month near the outer edge of the atmosphere or, or in low Earth orbit. Another issue that they could run into is there's still going to be little micrometeorites out there. Well, micrometeorite bouncing off something like the space station, whatever, might cause a dent, might cause a boom or something like that. It would tear one of these things to shreds. So that's another thing that they have to take into account. But the other idea that they have is if they can refine this and it can work, that they would use this to explore and mine asteroids. Now, I don't think they would actually do the mining of the asteroid, but maybe have machines down on the asteroid, eject the material up into space, mm -hmm. then use a modified version of these things to capture and collect that debris. So it's kind of like space-grade 
flypaper in many respects. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> that's that's a good way of looking at it. That's actually that's a cool little piece of technology. Mm. You know, I guess it's it's different from that that solar. Oh, sorry, you know that that. Uh, oh man, brain fart. I was going to say solar sail, but that's that's, that's, right, but that's not that's right. Tron. That's, that's Tron. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it's that kind you know of thing. I, mean. <laughs> I was thinking of that sort of thing, although that's meant specifically for propulsion, and then that would pull whatever satellite behind it, whereas mm-hmm. this is meant to be the satellite, which is kind of cool. So and hopefully that'll work for them. Like I said, the radiation and the threat of micrometeorites, that's some big stuff that they got overcome. Have you seen that website called Stuff in Space? No. It basically lists everything that is floating around that has been recorded. Is that also going to be partially terrifying? In a way, but it's beautiful at the same time. Stuff? Oh, I like that. Stuff in dot space. Yeah. That's right. I forgot that they expanded onto com org. Oh my god. Holy cow. There's a lot of stuff out there. That's a lot of space junk. Now, I'm, I'm assuming that's just what they can track. Yeah, that's uh, anything that's, that's listed. Oh, this isn't just junk, though. This is also actual satellites and so yeah, forth. Yeah, it's, it's satellites. Ah. It's, it's bits of old space stations or whatnot that's out there. There's everything. That's really cool. Oh, wow. You can see where where that ring of uh, geostationary satellites are. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I like that. Oh, even those that have orbits, it'll show you what the orbits are. Yeah. Oh, that's neat. It's um very simply put together, but it is quite f- yeah, it's effective. effective. Yeah. I'd love to see this in, you know, real 3D. Oh, yeah, holographic I'd thing. Mind- <laughs> oh, yeah. Holographic nothing, stereographic. That would be neat. Get on this. We need a Google Cardboard version of this. Oh, that would be superb. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's a really good website. Yeah, I like that. That's neat. I'll have to put that in the show notes. Catherine Johnson, who obviously is one of the figures behind Hidden Figures. Yeah. She now has her own building named after her. So it is the Catherine G. Johnson Computational Research Facility. Uh, It is a $23 million, 37,000 square foot data center. She's one of the three main people that were the subject of the movie Hidden Figures, which is flipping amazing. If you haven't seen it yet, you've got to see it. Mm -hmm. She was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom back in 2015 for her work in the space program. For those of you who, God, if you've listened to the show, you must know about her. She's one of the computational geniuses behind the Apollo program. Began orbital calculations by hand in 1962 uh, to the point that when computers were brand new... The astronauts didn't even really trust them. So John Glenn instructed his scientists to, quote-unquote, get the girl, referring to Katherine Johnson to verify all of the calculations. Now, because he trusted her over the computers. The strange thing is, these girls that were doing this job were actually called computers. Computers, yeah. yeah. That's where the term comes from. Mm. But, but it's funny, when she was told about this... Her response? <laughs> you want my honest answer? I think they're crazy. <laughs> At her age, she can say what she likes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> With what she's done, she can say what she wants. But, yeah, so that, that's the uh, newest state-of-the-art research facility for NASA in Hampton, Virginia. This one we've mentioned on the show before, but I just wanted to reiterate it. The golden records from the Voyager probes, Mm -hmm. those are actually available as, well, golden records. I don't want to say the Kickstarter is done for it, 
but Kickstarter is the only way that you can purchase them. So they are now available. They became available around August. They're still selling them through Kickstarter as their storefront, basically. So for $98, you will get a set of these gold records that actually come in, you know, record album kind of design that are exact duplicates of what you find on the Voyager 1 and 2. So it has all the sounds, it has all the greetings, uh, you know, it has all the markings on them. And uh, yeah, 98 bucks. I'm, I'm really, really fighting myself not getting one. Hmm. I think I'm going to crack. I'm pretty sure I'm going to end up getting these. Yes, yeah, a nice set. I'm sorry. I was just thinking, when a guy says it's a nice set and it talks about records, you know he's serious. That was awful. That's what my mind is doing tonight. The strange thing about the, the recordings on the uh, discs is that the only, what I would call popular culture music, is someone that we we lost not too long ago, um, which was Chuck Berry. It was, um, I think it was Johnny B. Good is on yep. the uh, on there. It's also the strange things that you hear is that there's the greetings from all the different countries of the people involved with the United Nations, and you've actually got no idea what they're saying, so they could be saying anything they like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was my first thought, because I have actually heard the recordings, and there are some weird and wonderful things on there, like um, different native chants and mm -hmm. whale song and that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm just thinking what extraterrestrials would make a whale song. I mean, if you've seen the Star Trek movies... You yeah. <laughs> yep. mm -hmm. You and I were thinking the same thing. I, I think that's probably what actually inspired that storyline, to be honest. I always wondered where they came up with that. As much as I love Star Trek, that is kind of really out there. Mm -hmm. Who would send a probe to talk to whales? Yeah. It's like, that's a really lame excuse to go environmental in Star Trek. But that link there, that's very interesting. Yeah, and, and, and another link to Voyager, or Vega, as is the case may be. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow, man, you, that just freaked me out a little bit. <laughs> I honestly think that that's what inspired the storyline, is the gold records. Oh, wow. I'm going to have to look that up now. Even if that's not the case, that's a great fan conspiracy theory. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, man, if there's any Trekkies listening to this, that could be interesting. Wow. <laughs> Right, so we're going to have another short break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by our resident astronomer, Ross Hockham, from the UK Astronomy Group, for his monthly look at the skies. On canvas with paint in the artist's school, it is red that is hot and blue that is cool. But in science we show, as the heat gets higher, a star will glow red like the coals of a fire. Raise the heat some more, and what is in sight? Behold, the star glows bright white. But the hottest of all, I say unto you, is neither red nor white when a star has turned blue. Blast off into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. Welcome back to TGP Nominal, and uh, as usual, I'm joined by Ross Hockham from the UK Astronomy Group, who's with us to tell us uh, a little bit about uh, what's going on in October. Now, uh, you, you might have to excuse the noise in the background. It does sound like uh, we're broadcasting from the other end of the universe, but um, <laughs> there's a few atmospherics and stuff at the moment, but hopefully things will be okay. So, Ross, how are you doing? 
Yeah, not too bad, mate. I'll try and speak loud for you so that then uh, I try not to scare my dogs. <laughs> We're all getting ready for Field of Force Day, and it's your debut outing at Field of Force Day. Um, how are you feeling about it? Yeah, good, good. It was really nice, actually, because we only met the guys, what, a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? Simon and the crew and JJ. Yeah, yeah. They kindly invited me straight away. Donations <laughs> off, didn't we, to help them out? Yeah, we travelled over to Peterborough to um, take some uh, donations to the uh, break-in fund, if you like, that they they had. Your good self donated some stuff, and also Ian Hine from Dead Universe Comics donated some stuff which he's, he's still got some stuff to donate as well he mentioned yeah it will keep because it's an ongoing event it, it rolls on and rolls on and rolls on so um, they're always happy to receive donations but yeah it should be fun and uh, it'll be great publicity for um, UK astronomy as well yeah well the main thing for us is that we get to teach people so we'll be there with solar scopes showing them the sun if it's clear which it never <laughs> is but hopefully we might see some sun and yeah just to chat to people really and tell them about strawberry and what they can see that's, that's what we love doing so especially as it's aimed at families and things like that and it's open to everyone that's exactly what we're about so yeah really looking forward to it so Ross, October, what have we got? Uh, it's looking good, actually. It's looking like quite a busy month for astronomy, bits and bobs going on. There's one day that's really busy. So <laughs> I think I might have to pull an all-nighter. <laughs> but yeah, last month was okay, but most of it was during the morning, wasn't it? It was all sort of like Mercury, Mars and Venus in the morning, which I was lucky enough to see. So I happened to be at work, I'm a firefighter, and I had a, a fire all through the night. It was a big one. But because we were at the back of the pump a lot of the time, checking water pressure was good, uh, we got to see them rise out of nowhere. So it was sort of like, oh, look at that. There you go, guys. Look, there's Mars. There's Venus. And I bored them, bless them. So they all went off to put out the fire rather than stand there looking at planets. <laughs> yeah, I was very lucky. So, yeah, let's begin then, shall we? Yeah, absolutely. Right, so it kind of kicks off the 11th of October. There's a, an NEO, which is a near-Earth object which everyone always panics about because they think it's always the end of the world and we're all going <laughs> to die. But it's actually just a close past of an asteroid. It's got the catchy name of 2012 TC4, which I always love. I'd like to make you know to make up names for these things because I just find that boring. <laughs> Call it Bob. But yeah, it's around 11 to 28 metres wide, so it's actually more like a space boulder rather than like a, a huge asteroid. But it is one of 8,180 that actually do cross Earth's orbit. So there's that many asteroids out there that cross our orbit, and they're classed as a potentially hazardous object. So it's passing around 49,000 kilometers of Earth, which doesn't sound very close, but again, in space terms, it's pretty close. It's enough to make us kind of hold our breath for a second as it flies by. It's going to pass on the 12th of October at 6.42 a.m., which isn't a great time for us to see it as astronomers because it's pretty much getting light. And the sun's coming up. But, best bet, if you have a look the night before, it moves around from Aquarius to Capricornus. I hate saying that because it's, you never say that properly. But I go Capricornus. And it's because it's at such a close distance, you should notice a white dot move against the background of stars over a few hours, if not less. So, most of the time, when you look at asteroids, you kind of go out for a night, you have to spend quite a lot, you know, go out for a night, take a picture go out the next night, take a picture. Go out the next night, take a picture, and you'll see a white dot, ah, it's moved that night, and it's moved again that night. Whereas with this one, you should be able to see it within a few hours, hopefully. 
So it's quite a cool thing to see. There's an asteroid darting past us. So why not have a look? But you will again probably need a telescope to see that because it is very, very small. We move on to the 13th and the 14th. If you're lucky enough to be in the southwest of the country, sort of below Plymouth, Oxford and Cambridge and that sort of line, there is a lunar oculation. It pretty much just means there's a star passing behind the crescent moon. But it is it's still quite a cool thing to see. It will see it will disappear and it will seem to appear from its dark limb. So it's almost like it's not there and suddenly a star will just appear out of nowhere. And that happens around 4.50 a.m. If you grab yourself a pair of binoculars, you'll be able to see it. We always say about 10 by 50 are what we recommend as astronomers. 10 being the magnification and 50 being its aperture, so it lets a lot more light in, which is what's needed to see these dim objects in space. But a normal pair of binoculars will be absolutely fine. You can nip out and see it. And there we've got 15, so it's almost, almost every couple of days there's something happening. If you fancy a bit of daytime astronomy, this is the day to do it. If you find the crescent moon, get a pair of binoculars on it, and then see if you can spot a star nearby. It's the star Regulus, which is in the uh, constellation Leo, the lion. And it's around about the 10, 11 o'clock mark. It's a blue star, and there's not a lot you can usually see during the day, but this one you should be able to see it. So I'm going to go and have a go because I've, I'm interested to see. You know, there's, there's meant to be 10 objects or so that you can see during the day. It's just hard to find them in the blue sky. So with a naked eye, you can't, but if you get binoculars and telescopes on them, it is possible. But be very careful, as I always say, keep away from the sun and stick onto the moon because it's safe. Then, if we move on to the 17th and the 18th, both of these mornings, you'll be able to see the moon, first buzz of Venus, so it's quite close to Venus, and then the next night, it will pop to Mars, making for quite a spectacular morning viewing, showing how the moon actually moves across the sky each night and day. So you'll actually be able to see how it's jumped that far in its orbit around us. And then on the 19th, back to Uranus, which happens to be in opposition. So it's still in the constellation of Pisces, and opposition just means that we're technically closest to it in our orbit around the sun. So it's a great time to get out and spot it, because it will be slightly brighter than usual. Uh, there's also a new moon at this time, so it's even better to see it, better than uh, before, because it won't be in the way. It's not going to wash anything out. And then I always say as an astronomer, it's now the best time for a week or so to go out and look at those dimmer objects, those deep sky objects, because there's nothing washing out. You've got a nice dark sky, uh, like galaxies and nebula and things like that. And that's that's what I love. That's my specialty. Moving on, the 21st and the 23rd, got a nice meteor shower and it's raiding from Orion, which is quite an easy constellation to see. Although at this time of year, it doesn't really rise until about 1am. But if you get up nice and early, you should get a good show because it's kind of increased in future years for some reason. It has little peaks and troughs. It used to be about 20 an hour. Then it's jumped up to about 50. So in some years, it's a lot higher than others. And it's actually designated about a 70 an hour now on average. So if you look towards Orion, on his left shoulder, there's a huge red star called Betelgeuse. I like to say Betelgeuse rather than Betelgeuse because I love the film. That's where generally it radiates from about that area. So the cool thing about this is if you actually sat there and you see one of these go flying across the sky, it's actually a tiny part of Halley's Comet. So that famous comet that's been through history, as it's been going round and round and round in orbit, leaving a dust trail, it's a part of that comet which you'll see it going up in the atmosphere. Wow. I think, I think that's really cool. It is, yeah. <laughs> I love little facts like that. That's that's the sort of thing that gets you, you know, don't just go out and go, that's a star, it's red. 
I like to sit there and go, right, why is it red? What is it? What's this? What's that? And there's, there's loads of little facts like that. I never knew meteor showers when I started were comet trails mm-hmm. we were passing things like that and I was like that's cool we're going well, the earth is passing through the trail of a comet I think that's awesome I think there are two that aren't comets there's a couple that are actually asteroids but I think, I'm sure we'll probably come on to that when, uh, when one comes up so yeah while you're at Orion and you might as well have a look at something else because early in the morning you've got up specially there is something that I'm quite excited about there's actually a comet there so you can see the, the meteors from a comet and then actually look at a comet. And I'm excited about it because it should be visible all month, hopefully, and it should brighten throughout the month, and it's passing right through the center of Orion's belt. So it's a really easy one to find. It's gonna be in that area. Uh, you'll probably need a moderate scope to see it. You may be able to have a big pair of binoculars. Things about, they say magnitude plus 10 or 10 is gonna be. So it should be okay should be quite good to see. It's going to start around the middle star of the belt and then from the 10th to the 14th it will sort of curve up and past it to the right and then up past the right hand star. I would name them the stars that is but I'm probably going to say I'm wrong. I'll probably get ridiculed in the astronomy circle for it. So I was going to say the middle star and the right hand star. They're both they're both blue and it's called. It's going to curve up and round and past that. So it's got the catchy name again 2016 R2 pan stars and yeah it's meant to brighten up over the month so it's there for the whole month so if you get a clear night we can just nip out have a quick look you may see it with binoculars why not I would get a cup of tea on there is another comet it's called 201701 and that one's heading up towards Polaris which is the north star mm-hmm. so I don't actually know exactly where it is right now but it should be heading up sort of it's close to it so within the month we'll be heading up towards there so I think I mean I will put a guide on the Facebook group when I find out and get it all up there the plough if you follow the handle round down the saucepan the last two stars on the right hand side are sort of the saucepan if you draw a line between those two straight up that will lead you to Polaris so around there you can have a hunt see if you can find that comet there and if you do let us know on the Facebook group so yeah, there's, there's loads of stuff going on. There's also other asteroids, there's a few more near-Earth objects, and some minor planets that come in to opposition. But uh, they're a bit more harder to explain where they are and what's going on. So I will put them all on the Facebook group once I've found out and got nice pictures for you. But yeah, that's pretty much my my quick run-through of October and what's going on. Excellent. So quite a bit. So Ross, whilst you're here, and it is world space week and there's probably lots of people that haven't actually been able to look up and find out what's going on out there tell us a little bit about what people need to do to get started uh, well most people the, the biggest question we get is they always come in or go on the group or email me and say yeah, i'm a complete beginner i don't know anything about astronomy at all you know i want to buy a skype watch to love one and that's almost like straight away you just think oh man it's just there's so much to talk about here but i will say to people but if you're a complete beginner and you're sitting there going right i want to buy a scope what shall i get blah, blah blah don't you don't need to buy a scope don't buy one you don't need one you can start off just literally using your naked eye you can go into your garden look up what do you see there's stars there's loads of stars there, all different shapes, all different colours, got red, blue, yellow. So look at them, look them up, find out, you know, why are they this colour? What causes it? What are their names? 
and then you can go right i'm going to choose a constellation or what is that shape in the sky go and look up the constellation find out the myth behind it i mean even draw it that helps you learn and figure out what it is draw what the stars are draw what colors the stars are write it down so then you know research into what is it a hero a villain an animal a beast and what's going on up there and then find out the area that it takes up in the sky uh, there's some great books that they get. There's uh, there's ones called uh, Constellations by Giles Farrow. That's great for you. There's the DK the Stars, which you can get in I think Waterstones and places like that. About thirty pound maybe. I've got it. Love it. Such a good book. And then also on on our Facebook group, we've got a resident guide, Richard Bartlett. He's got uh, loads of guides out there, and he quite often will email you and send you a free guide, you know, via email. So he gives them out for free. Blessing. And then also, you've got apps. You've got apps on your phone now, the technology we have. There's ones called Stellarium, Sky Safari. Pop them on your phone, and then just go out there, have a look. Learn where the stars are. And then, why not planets? You can see most of the planets by eye. You could be able to see Mercury, although it's quite hard because it's close to the sun, but you might just be able to see it. Venus is really easy, very bright, and it's either in the morning or the evening. Can't miss it. Mars is up. You can see that it's just be a lot you'll see it and it'll be a, a red block you can actually see that it's red so you can see that that's Mars. you can see jupiter and saturn so to find out where they are how they move across the sky look at our moon look at the phases draw the phases and just get an idea of you know how things move in the sky how the stars move where the planets go and that's all of that it's just you make it on it's all for free you don't need to buy anything at all so as a beginner i'd say go and do that that's your first step but then say you've done that so so mark's gone out he's learned all the stuff he knows what's going on he's like right now i want to look a little bit closer still don't buy a telescope get some binoculars generally we say 10 by 50s 10 being the magnification and 50 being the aperture size because uh, you want the large aperture because it's going to let light in so you can see faint objects and yeah you can just go out with them have a look up there again concentrate on the stars you saw because you saw one star maybe you look with binoculars there may be another 10 around it that you can see with your eye look at the planets closer again look at the moon closer again mercury and venus you'll start to notice that they have phases like our moon look up why why do they have phases but the other planets don't there's a reason for it i won't tell you because i want you to go out and learn for yourselves uh you'll see mars again but generally just a bigger red blob you can't see much detail through binoculars Jupiter, however, you should be able to just make out its gas lines and four white dots, which are its main moons, which move around. Look them up, find out what they are, which one's which. They will surprise you because no one of them is the same as the other. So it's really cool to see. Saturn, you should just be able to see its rings. They will be quite small, but of course, depending on where we are in Earth's orbit, weather, atmosphere, how high they are in the sky, all those things determine, but of course, cloud determines what you'll see and how much you'll see, what detail you'll see on them. the moon. Uh, you can get an app called Moon Globe HD and Moon Calendar, which will show you all the stuff on the moon and then a calendar of what the moon's doing when it's up, whereabouts it is, which is quite cool. Uh, if you do go and buy a big pair of binoculars, which we say 20 by 80 is probably the biggest you want to go for, they're about £100. If you start thinking that this is cool, I like this then uh, you're going to need a tripod or something to go with it, a nice sturdy one, because you won't be able to hold it. <laughs> I've tried, and I, I do count myself as quite a fit guy. 
But the best thing you can do is you can lean against a wall, lay on the ground, and just explore up in the sky. I mean, the good thing about binoculars is you get a larger field of view. So when you look for a telescope, you can't actually fit some of the large star clusters in it. So binoculars are, are a must. You've got uh, the Pleiades, which is a big group of blue stars in Taurus. And then also Taurus, the Borwitz head constellation, is actually an asterism. I won't tell you what an asterism is, look it up. And that's called the Hyades or Hades. And the bullseye is kind of like a big bright star, which is, takes sort of the center stage of that cluster. So that's worth looking at. You can also see the uh, Orion Nebula. It's slightly small, but you can see a nebula with just binoculars in your back garden, which is where stars are being born and new planets and things like that. So definitely binoculars. So you don't need a telescope. If you want to then start the minefield of telescopes, which I'd imagine most people do, everyone everyone likes a scope, don't they? Yeah, definitely. They, they all want to get in there and go, right, so what telescope should I go for? So let's say, let's say Mark's done all that. He's had a look at the sky, he's getting into it, he's seen some clusters, he knows where the planets are. And he's like, right, it's telescope time. What shall I do? Well, if we start off getting rid of all the jargon of what they are and blah, 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 I tend to just say a scope comes from three parts. You've got a tripod, which you want to be light, collapsible for mobility, unless you're keeping it in your garden, but you want it to also be strong and sturdy. We always say try to avoid retail scopes because they are generally made of flimsy aluminum or aluminium, depending if you're American or not. I know I've got a few American listeners. Yeah. And uh, it, <laughs> so I've just defended them all now. Uh, it will cause a scope to wobble, which is really frustrating. I, I've had it with some scopes that people have brought, and every time you think you've got a planet there, when you move it slightly, it bounces, wobbles, and you just lose it. You just can't get it in there. And that, that will put people off. So I always say, please get a decent tripod that comes with it. Usually they come in a whole lot. Uh, the second part is the mouth, which is literally the bit that goes between the tripod and the scope. And that's the bit that generally moves everything around. Now, I cannot say this enough. Avoid something called a manual EQ mount. They're fantastic if you know what to do with them, because what happens is normal scopes move left, right, up, down, you can just move them about. These ones actually follow the motion of the stars. So they're kind of going like an arc, follow the stars and the planets. I count myself as a decent astronomer now, <laughs> a decent amateur, and I struggle getting to grips with them. So for a beginner to buy them, you need to know your latitude, you need to know the right ascension and the declination of the object you're viewing. There's loads of fiddly dials, one of them moves, <laughs> and it's really hard to figure out what's going on and actually get anything in there. So as a beginner, avoid a manual EQ mount. Some of them are motorized, which are great. They're fine, because you can just press a couple of buttons and it will show you whatever in the garden. So if you just want to jump out, have a quick peek, you can get one of them. Uh, the third part is the scope, which is the best bit. Uh, there's two types, pretty much, which make it simpler. You've got a refractor, which is great for looking at bright objects like planets, moon, things like that. They do give you a better, sort of, sort of lightly better image. It's a crisper, truer color of the image that you're seeing of the object. The only problem with them is you don't get as much aperture. So that's why they're not good for, you know, dimmer objects. But they're the ones you look through the end of, you know, like Christopher Columbus on his boat sort of looking thing. So they're like that. They're great. Reflectors are the other ones. You've got refractor, reflector, which pretty much says what it is. It reflects. It's a mirror. It's a big mirror at the bottom. Well, that goes down to it, 
bounces up so a little secondary mirror which then comes through the eyepiece at the side so you've got the eyepiece at the side for reflectors base for a refractor uh, that's what I've got and uh, I love it absolutely love it you can get quite large apertures for these and they're quite cheaper because it's just a mirror so I think it's about 150 to 400 pound so there's quite a nice range there for a beginner or a more advanced mine was 400 ish I think but I did go for the biggest one I could get because I was about to get married and I thought yeah that's where all the money's going <laughs> so my wife actually let me go out and buy one before it took all the money got that and they're great to see dimmer objects you can see all the deep space stuff like the galaxies nebula clusters of stars that are further away and things like that the only thing with them is uh, occasionally you may have to adjust the mirror because it can move but it's quite simple you get a little laser it goes down the eyepiece you just use a screw to change it that's the main sort of guide for scopes and what the three parts are would you say that the a reflector is easier to, to view yeah you don't have to because if you're looking up you have to go on your knees mm. or you have to have to be really high to actually look through the bottom of a refractor don't you it's right down there yeah so the reflector because it's right on the edge you can just sort of you're standing right you might be stooping over a little bit but it's not it's, it's kind of easier to uh, to use I think anyway the only problem with some of these scopes is the, the area that you like to look at because you're looking through less atmosphere is right above you so if you're looking up it's actually even more difficult <laughs> to get right down to look up there and they, they are known like the Dobsonians which is the one that I'll, I'll talk a little bit about in a sec they have like a blind spot there because they go up to that point but they don't then go over the top of themselves if you know what I mean so they stop and then you have to kind of turn it round to then look the other way so if you're looking at something directly above you it can be a little bit fiddly if you're looking for the best scope for you you need to sit there and go right what is it that I want to get out of astronomy it's like, it's like buying a car, you have to buy the right car for you that's going to work, does everything you want. So generally, we'll say, if you want to look at planets in the moon, refractor. If you want to also see deeper space objects like galaxies and nebula, reflector. If you just want to pop out in the garden for half hour and look at 10 things, then buy a go-to. So it can be refractor or reflector, but the mount on it is a go-to one. So you plug it in and it moves around on its own and we'll look at stuff and go, oh, that's cool, and go inside. If you want astrophotography, then you need a nice sturdy mount that will track, so it will track the objects and follow it. Because if you look through my scope, because it doesn't track it, it's just manual, when you're looking at Jupiter, you'll see it drifting across, which I think is quite cool, because it's actually, that's the movement of the Earth. That you can see the Earth moving as the planet goes across, and you're like, oh, I quite like that, I don't know why. It's probably because I'm old school. It's really, it is a minefield for people, and that's why we always ask some questions. We say, right, what is it you want? Do you want to go? Do you want to take it in your car? Do you want to leave it in your garden? What do you want to do? But if you're a bog standard beginner, and say you've, you've got a couple of kids that are interested, like I started with a 50-pound tabletop little Dobsonian sort of scope. You can get them all online. They're generally pretty good, and you'll be able to see small things like Jupiter and its four moons. Binoculars are actually probably better, but to start off with, it will give you... A, a good idea I mean a Dobsonian the only reason I recommend them is it's a base a wooden base that spins that's it you have two handles you screw in the tube goes on top you screw them in that's it that's all you need and then there's a little a little knob as I say at the end it just moves it up down left right you've got a finder scope on the top so use your binoculars if you've still got them because you should have started with binoculars so look at the area and see, oh, that's around about where the object is. 
then look through the finder scope on the top of it, the little one, and go, ah, right, that's roughly even closer to the area. Then look through the eyepiece, and there you go. You should be able to see it. I won't go into eyepieces because <laughs> it just goes on forever. But if you look at eyepieces, the bigger the number, so like 20 mil, that's sort of like the bigger field of view you've got, but you're not as close. You're not, you know, you're not magnifying it. The smaller it gets, the more you go in, the more you zoom, which isn't always best. So always start off with a nice big number so you can find the object and then zoom into it as you go. And also, you go on our website, www.ukastronomy.org. Uh, I've literally just been writing up a guide. We've got a Celestron guide as well, beginner scopes for people. If you can find a local group, which, which is what our Facebook group's kind of about, we're trying to get people in local areas to all meet up and help each other. Go in there, find a local group, go and try the scopes, go and actually see them, feel them, look at them, look what you can see through them, learn about them a bit before you then go and buy one. That's my bog standard kind of running off with myself guide to scopes. Well, once again, Ross, it's fantastic having you on the show, especially for this special occasion. And um, yeah, everyone just basically look up and see what you can find. Yeah, just remember there's a billion worlds in your back garden, all there for you. Awesome. So, John, it was great to have Ross back on the show again. Also, it was nice of him to record that extra piece for World Space Week. You can tell that he's really passionate about what he talks oh my- about slightly however you know what i have to say this it is not our fault it is not our fault pause for dramatic effect that you folks don't know how to pronounce aluminum (laughs) not our fault he loves taking his jabs at americans doesn't he (laughs) i can throw him back you know (laughs) oh yeah Nah, he, he, he loves his stuff. He knows his stuff. It's all good. Yeah, as, as he said, if you have any issues with astronomy or if you've got problems or anything like that, if, if you go to the uh, UK Astronomy Facebook group page, there will be someone there that can possibly help you out with your um, situation. So they're, they're always there to help. And it's a great group of people. And the, as I say, it is the UK Astronomy Group, but it is pretty much global. So we're going to take another short break, and when we come back, we'll be talking with our special guest. Did you know that right now we have a spacecraft orbiting the moon? The Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has been at the moon for over seven years, providing unprecedented detail into our nearest neighbor in space. I'm Noah Petro, and for more information about the moon and the LRO mission, go to nasa.gov slash LRO and follow us on Twitter at LRO underscore NASA. Back in episode 3.14 of TGP Nominal, we spoke to planetary scientist Noah Petro from the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center about the total solar eclipse that was about to take place. Noah also chatted with John and I about the work that he is involved with with the LRO, or the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, and about the moon itself. And as International Observe the Moon Night is coming up later this month, we decided to keep that part of the conversation conversation exclusively for our world space week edition of the podcast personally i've been working uh, on a, a paper over the last two years now that's been accepted and published with jack schmidt the apollo 17 astronaut re-investigating re- his landing site the taurus Littrow valley and so that's been very exciting because um it, sh- it shows me how much we have left to learn about the moon i mean even a place that we've been uh, albeit 45 years ago now 
uh, we are still learning new things, thanks in large part to the data that we're collecting from LRO. And so, you know, that kind of reinforces, in my mind, that uh, we, as much as we know a lot about the moon and know a lot about the places we've been, we're still figuring things out. We're still doing our science and uh, learning about the moon. LRO is continuing its its uh, its operation at the lunar orbit. We are now in the middle of our uh, two-year extended mission. We're starting to think about what we'll do on our next extended mission when we go back to NASA and say, hey, here's all the amazing science we could do if we're funded for more uh, for, for two or three more years. You know, we've had several sort of interesting science results come out recently. Uh, the camera team has observed over 200 new impact craters that have formed on the lunar surface in the eight years that we've been there. And those are impact craters that have been imaged. There are obviously thousands more that we haven't imaged, but that gives us the first direct observation of new impact craters on the lunar surface. Uh, actually, a couple of weeks ago, the camera team reported uh, an impact that occurred actually on the radiator of the camera itself. They uh, they were hit by a meteorite while they were taking an image, and so there was uh, sort of a, a nice little uh, detective work done to investigate the possible size of that micrometeorite that struck our spacecraft. But, I mean, um, I know that a micrometeorite is really like a gram or less, but that gram yeah. is going at roughly 22,000 miles an hour. Did that have any impact, no pun intended, on uh, the the LRO itself with regards to damage or anything? So, yeah, that's a great question. One of the cool things that, so the, the only reason we knew this happened is that it happened at the exact moment that the camera, the high-resolution camera, was taking an image. And so this is line scanner. Okay, so taking an image and then all of a sudden the picture gets all wobbly it just goes back and forth back and forth back and forth and then eventually over a few seconds it stops it stops that that smearing in the, the image stops now this high resolution camera is actually made of two cameras a left and a right camera and you put them together to make a wider image and it was only really the left camera that had this shaking in it the right one a little bit but not too much and based on what we know about how the camera was built mounted to the spacecraft, the connection between the two, we could then model what would happen, how, what would it take to, to cause that vibration at what frequency, too. So you can measure in the image kind of the back-forth, back-forth. Now, we assume that the meteorite was moving at about, oh, it is a 10 kilometers per second or thereabouts, um, and based on the amount of vibration, you could assume a size. Um, it didn't obviously break anything. It didn't, you know, we saw no effect to the rest of the spacecraft. I think at that moment, you know, the, the sensors on the spacecraft may have noticed a slight movement, but nothing major, nothing that if you weren't looking for something, you'd see it. And really, the only way we knew it happened was through this smeared image. If it wasn't taking a picture at that time, we would not have known it happened. There had been no lingering effects. And actually, based on the, the, the amount of vibration, they were able to at least uh, predict or think that that impact occurred on one of the radiators for that left camera. And so, um, you know, if in the future someone goes to visit LRO in space, uh, they would potentially see lots of little holes or little micrometeorite impacts on our on our spacecraft, and uh, that particular one would be on the uh, camera's radiator. Wow! Yeah, it's just you think of you hear of even though the word micro or the you know prefix yeah. micro is there, you think oh it got hit by a meteorite, it must have gone spinning, and obviously that wasn't the case. Yeah, no, it didn't send anything wildly out of control. And, uh, you know, shuttles, uh, the Apollo command modules, all have, you know, surfaces on those all came back with small micrometeorite strikes. Of course, the rocks that were brought back on Apollo all had micrometeorite craters on them as well. 
But uh, apparently this happens. A colleague here at Goddard is an astrophysicist, and so he's actually looking at data from one of the uh, uh, sort of deep space astrophysics missions and looking for these subtle vibrations and trying to use that as a proxy, as a, a, a gauge for micrometeorite strikes on, on their spacecraft. And we have these incredibly sensitive spacecraft across the solar system and sure we should be able to pick up these little pings ting 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 as uh, as they fly through the solar system because they, they have mentioned that in the past when they were on the um the space shuttle that uh, occasionally you hear these little pings on the side of it as they're, they're traveling yeah and fortunately none have been have been big enough to uh cause any real problems but uh, it's definitely a factor you know sustaining presence in, in deep space is that this is going to happen one of the, the sort of nice results coming from lro about larger impacts is the identification of impact craters on the moon the meter scale impact craters and so we know that those are being formed by meteorites striking the lunar surface and the same sized objects are striking the earth as well burning up in the earth's atmosphere but uh you know we're getting the sense of the the distribution the flux of small objects in the sort of earth moon system uh, thanks in, in no small part to LRO. What about these um, proposed orbits that could, might be planned, may not be planned? <laughs> um, what do you, what uh, do you think about those? Uh, you know, one of the exciting possibilities is that, that we would either be joined in orbit around the moon by uh, uh, future human explorers or other robotic uh, missions as well. You know, I'm, I'm eager to see what comes next for us at the moon. You know, LRO has advanced the story and continues to advance the story of lunar science, but certainly there's a lot of space left for uh, for other uh, exploration and other missions to, to join us at the moon. You know, I'm eager to see what comes of some of the first uh, human missions that will orbit the moon and, and the possibility of a... Um, of a cislunar habitat, something in the in the lunar vicinity that gets humans into deep space yeah. and near the moon, and that will open up the opportunity for for potential for future robotic exploration of the lunar surface mm-hmm. and uh, maybe even sample return. So there is a, a a long line of really exciting things that may come down uh, in the next decade or so with uh, not just robotic but human exploration of deep space. Because there's, there's been a lot of rumbling about a possible, not not a lunar base, as it were, but something stationed off-world, as it were, on the far side. It's mainly rumours, but um, there has been a lot of talk about that. LRO is paving the way for the science questions that we should be asking when we go back to the moon or near the moon. Uh, where do we want to go? What kind of instruments? What, what, what are some of the pressing science questions that we can answer and address at or near the moon. You know, I, I like to think that LRO is sort of laying the, the road for all future exploration of the moon. And again, whether that's done on the surface or kind of the kind of instruments that we'll take with us uh, when we go back to lunar orbit, definitely uh, all will hinge on some of our discoveries. And, and on a personal level, you mentioned about the questions that we can get answered from the moon. What kind of things would you personally like to find out? I mean, I'm, there are really two areas that I'm most interested in in terms of lunar science, lunar geology. The age of different features and the geo- the composition of different features. And so those sorts of questions really require either direct in-situ measurements, you land something on the surface to measure the composition, to measure the age, or you grab that sample, you grab that rock, that, that scoop of lunar regolith, and you bring it back to a lab and measure it. And so there are several outstanding questions about the ages of various uh, 
large impact craters on the moon. There's the enormous South Pole Aiken Basin on the far side of the moon. It's the oldest impact crater uh, in the Earth-Moon system. And so uh, knowing the age of that particular feature would really help us constrain the geologic history of the Earth and the moon, which you know, it's kind of a lofty goal, but it's important. We just don't know what was happening in the earliest portions of certainly lunar and also Earth history. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, a landed mission to the far side of the moon to uh, determine the age of the South Pole Aiken Basin would definitely help us understand better what was happening, you know, four and a half billion years ago. There's the question of when did volcanism cease on the lunar surface? There's evidence that there may be very young volcanism in some places uh, as recent as 50 million years ago. And that really flies in the face of our understanding of how the moon is operated. Before LRO, we thought volcanism ceased a billion years ago. And now we think that maybe it's as recent as 500 million years. That's a huge discrepancy. And knowing when the moon cooled off so that volcanism was no longer supported would be very important for our understanding of how the moon operates. And then by association, you know, we again, we apply our understanding of the moon to every other object in the solar system. And so... We learn about the moon, we apply that everywhere else. And does that that theory actually work with some of the other celestial bodies that we are sending probes out to? The, the, what we're actually learning from the moon, it, it actually does follow through for other planets. Absolutely. I mean, when I first saw those pictures now over a year ago from New Horizons of Pluto, you know, I was astonished at what I saw. And I mean, for me, the most surprising thing was seeing those very big, smooth planes. And the moment I saw those smooth surfaces, I thought, by golly, those have to be young. Now, you know, question is how young, but we know that they're, you know, geologically recent. They are not covered by impact craters for the most part. Uh, they're, they're relatively undeformed. The reason why we know that those uncratered surfaces are young is based off of our understanding of the impact history of the moon and that crater surfaces that are uncratered or relatively uncratered or are geologically young and so all of that ties back to our knowledge gained from both Apollo and from our orbital mapping of the moon you know looking at the dynamic tidal stresses on other objects on the icy moons of uh, Jupiter and of Saturn you know obviously the moon does not have geysers of water but uh, the moon is tidally active and we understand that tidal activity on the moon in large part because we've got uh, seismic data from the Apollo era of the moon and know how it responds to being in an earth orbit and we apply that understanding to what we're seeing on these icy planets or icy moons and so you know sometimes the, that direct connection to the moon is there and sometimes it's buried deeply in our understanding of how planets work now i've seen videos of proposals for lunar habitation uh, which yep. which has been done in a form of 3d printing uh, yeah. using regolith to, to build the habitats. Is regolith structurally sound for doing that kind of thing? One of the primary uses of regolith for any surface activity will be as a shielding material. Mm-hmm. You basically pick your habitat or your you know, container in a, a meter or so of regolith, not only to provide protection from micrometeorites, but also from uh, uh, you know harmful radiation. So when we, uh, you know, the regolith is scoopable. We learned that in Apollo. Now we're talking about moving, you know, much more regolith around and burying something. That's far more than what Apollo uh, did. But our understanding of the dynamics of the, the structure of the regolith are sufficient to let us you know, do that. It's just going to require the right equipment, the right machinery to, to make that happen. Because I've, I've heard that it's it's not quite like dust or dirt. It's Some of the astronauts said that it was quite sharp. Yes, yeah, the, 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 because 
the only process to break up the lunar surface's micrometeorite uh, impact, you end up with this very, very sharp fraction, uh, you know, fractured surface. Uh, on the Earth, water is very good at eroding and smoothing out objects at the surface. Without that on the moon, you end up with these very sharp little jagged edges. Um, and so on Apollo, even when the last three missions were on the moon for three days, that was enough time for the dust to, to really get into the, the equipment. Now, the astronauts never faced any problems because of that, but you can imagine dust in a habitat will be a problem. You don't want to be traipsing in all of this dusty material, breathing it in. You don't want it to get into your machinery. It, it's like sandpaper, but worse. <laughs> and uh, something that has to be overcome with future uh, especially future extended stays on the lunar surface. Before we get to Mars, I can see us going back to the moon once again. You know, that's the, the great conflict. Do we go back to the moon before going to Mars? Do we go straight to Mars? Um, I think somewhere in there is, is what we'll end up doing. I would advocate that we still have a lot to learn about working off of the Earth, uh, living on another planet. We've done it six times during Apollo for mm -hmm. as much as three days. But if we're going to be talking about sending humans into deep space, living on Mars, coming back, doing science, doing good science on Mars, um, I think uh, testing that, even though the, the environments are different, would be very valuable. Because, I mean, when you think about the, the time scale that it actually takes you to, to get to Mars in comparison to get to the moon, I mean, if you're learning how to deal with living on another world, getting there in two days to do training and things would be a lot easier than waiting all that time to get to Mars. Yeah, I mean, you've got to live in deep space for a year to get to Mars. Your body is going to change. You know, we've got experience with the International Space Station of humans being in low Earth orbit for extended periods of time. But um, being in deep space presents its own hazards and challenges. Mm -hmm. And uh, But then, yeah, what do you do and how do you handle problems that they, as they come up? Uh, you know, Apollo was fortunate. They were, like you said, they were just a few days away from the Earth. Even on Apollo 13, they were able to come back home. But there will be a point where we are going deeper into space where that won't be an option. Um, and so learning how to address issues, even just issues of autonomy. You know, at Apollo, they were in communication with Houston essentially all the time. Certainly while they were on the surface, they were in communication. Yeah. When you're in deep space, you got to have uh, delays in communication of, of several minutes up to tens of minutes. And so you won't be able to radio for help when a problem arises. And so even just you know learning how to do that, which is very different from the standard operating procedure right now, is going to be important. Yeah, definitely. Spanhead Productions are a small, independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, Spanhead Productions. .weebly.com That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com Well, John, we've had another packed show and uh, it's a great start to Season 4 of TGP Nominal. Yay! Season 4! Thank you, everybody for, everybody, for being here with us. It's been a fun ride. It certainly has. Well, before we go, I'd, I'd like to thank Noah Petro for coming on board and Ross Hockham for joining the crew and of mm -hmm. course your good self John the, the show wouldn't be the same without you yeah it'd probably be better <laughs> <laughs> 
thanks again to everyone for listening, especially those of you who have joined us from the, the World Space Week website. And hopefully we'll speak to you all again real soon. Toodles! Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com Because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. Don't forget to rate and review us. You can find links on all our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event. <laughs>